On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship, to that alone the witness of the universe do we bow. To that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of samsara, do we come for refuge. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning. Today our topic was chosen as Time and Eternity. I chose this topic because I was feeling like I was getting all the time short of time. I was running out of time. So I thought this would give me a chance at least to think about what is time? Why am I running out of time? But uh, it sounds like a very philosophical topic, but I'm not much of a philosopher. So... I approached the topic through uh, stories about Swami Vivekananda. So we'll start with an incident with Swami Vivekananda in San Francisco in 1900. This is recorded by Thomas Allen, one of the devotees of Swamiji, who was an usher for his uh, lectures and would also introduce Swamiji before he would give his lecture in the auditorium. So on March 25, 1900... (coughs) He was to give a lecture, and this is the uh, reminiscences of Thomas Allen. A lecture at Union Square Hall, Post Street, was advertised to begin at 3 p.m. But at 3 p.m., Swami was not there. We waited and wondered what to do, and concluded that we must just wait. Several times I went out onto the street to see if he was visible. At last, at about 3.30 p.m., I saw him slowly walking up. I went and met him and walked with him towards the hall. I said, Swami, don't you know you're late? The audience has been waiting. Swami replied, Mr. Allen, I am never late. I have all the time in the world. All time is mine. Well, Swami, I said, the audience may not feel the same as you do. (laughs) But Swami just went on at his same leisurely pace. On the way, we had to pass a shoeshine stand. And when Swami saw that the shoeshiner was idle, he went up to him to have his shoes polished. (laughs) I was silently fidgeting, thinking about the people who had come to hear the lecture. But my fidgeting did no good. At last... Swami got onto the platform and was again introduced to the audience, which had more or less patiently waited for him. So this is a wonderful story. We know that Swamiji appreciated very much the American 
attention to promptness and punctuality and starting things on time, starting when we say we're going to start something at uh, three, we'll start it at three. But here we find him seemingly utterly indifferent, even already half an hour late and stopping to get his shoes shined. <laughs> and then he has this astounding claim, Mr. Allen, I am never late. I have all the time in the world. All time is mine. There's an interesting uh, postscript to this uh, incident. At this, it was at this lecture, Mr. Allen writes, it was at this, when I introduced him at this lecture, that I felt like a pygmy and saw him as an immense giant. After this experience, I could not bring myself to stand beside him again, but always thereafter made my introduction from the foot of the platform. So Mr. Allen, at the lectures, he would go get up onto the platform and give a little introductory speech for Swamiji. And this time, he felt like he was standing next to a giant. And he was a little pygmy. And after that, he never dared to stand up next to Swamiji on the platform again. He would stand down below and introduce him. So I think that is a clue to how Swamiji could speak the way he did and act the way he did. Swamiji was always in an exalted state of consciousness, of course, but particularly so in Northern California in 1900. He had, for the most part, completed his mission. And this was like, uh, almost like vacation. He was giving some lectures, he was in a, uh, raising a little money, and he was in a very high state of consciousness. A transcendent, transcendent consciousness, we can say. When he arrived in Alameda in April of 1900, Mr. Allen greeted him very jovially, saying, Well, Swami, I see you are in Alameda. Swamiji gravely replied, No, Mr. Allen, I am not in Alameda. Alameda is in me. <laughs> so that's the um, standpoint uh, from which Swamiji was acting at this point. This is... I think, uh, what it means to be identified with the Atman. Swamiji was at this point not identified with his body or with his mind, but with the Atman, the self. The self, the Atman, is not in time and space. Rather, time and space are in the self. We think of Swami Vivekananda as being in Alameda, of course, but Swamiji himself, and that he was quite late for a lecture, though it would have been worth it to wait. It would have been worth it to wait 10 hours to hear Swamiji speak. But um, for Swamiji, it wasn't so. He wasn't late because time was within him. For Swamiji to be late, he, would be, he must be subject to time. He must be in time. But he was identified with the self, not with the body and mind. So all time was his, as he put it. oftentimes the American devotees would get some frustration with Swamiji and time. And one American devotee worried that uh, they were going to miss a steamer, told him, Swamiji, you have, you have no idea of time. And Swamiji replied very calmly, No, you live in time. We live in eternity. 
So for Swamiji, time meant something very different than it does to us. We live in time and we are bound by time. And we struggle against time. And yet we never win because time never stops for us. But Swamiji was beyond time identified with the self. He wrote in his beautiful letter to Sarah Bull of 20th January 1895, Coming and going is all pure delusion. The soul never comes nor goes. Where is the place to which it should go when all space is in the soul? When shall be the time for entering and departing when all time is in the soul? Swamiji navigated this world of time and space with ineffable grace and skill, yet he was not of the world, and perhaps that's why he could do it with such grace. His standpoint was entirely different. The ultimate principle in Vedanta is the Atman, Brahman, the Absolute, beyond mind and speech, beyond time, space, and causation, as the saying goes, Desha Kala Nimitta. That is our true nature. The Gita says, Nitya Sarvagatastanuhu Achaloyam Sanatnaha. It is eternal, all pervading, immovable, unchanging. The self is ever the same. But these are words coming from our time and space, trying to describe something which is beyond time and space, beyond deshakala nimitta, time, space, and causation. So long as we are aware of time, we are within time, space, time, causation. We are within maya. Swamiji explains, time, space, and causation are the three conditions through which mind perceives Time is the condition for the transmission of thought and space for the vibration of grosser matter. Causation is the sequence in which vibrations come. Mind can only cognize through these. Anything, therefore, beyond mind must be beyond time, space, and causation. These three always come together, time, space, and causation. If there's one, the others will have to be there. Causation only makes sense in the uh, in respect to time. Causation means one thing causes another thing. That only happens when things happen one after the other. When there's no time, there's no idea that one thing happens after another. Now we say the self is eternal, but what what do we mean by eternity? Forever time without end. It sounds actually like a kind of torture that time should go on forever. It should go on forever. The eternal actually means beyond time. Beyond time. Thus beyond mind. So we cannot actually grasp it, yet we can experience it. We can experience that Condition where time and space no longer missed the view, as Swamiji puts it. Time and space no longer missed the view. 
It's very interesting to read. I've been reading some uh, near-death experiences. People have recorded their near-death experiences, and many of them say that somehow in that state they were out of their body and near death, they had gone beyond time. That, In fact, one account states that uh, she understood that all of her past lives were being lived at the same time because in that state she was she had gone beyond time. So her different past lives were not coming one after the other. They were all going at the same time. Difficult to understand. But this was her experience. Now, time itself, we all live within it. But mostly we don't think about what it is. We just... We don't question it. We have a common sense idea, perhaps, of some universal clock ticking. There must be a clock ticking at the center of the galaxy, and that's marking out time, and everything is unfolding in this universe according to that time. The dictionary has an interesting way of defining time. The American Heritage Dictionary says, a non-spatial continuum. Time is a non-spatial continuum in which events occur in apparently irreversible succession from the past to the present to the future. And a simpler definition might be, time is what clocks measure. So we have this common sense notion that of this universal clock ticking, marking out the time. But actually, this is turns out to be incorrect. From the standpoint of physics, time, as it turns out, is not absolute but relative and also is not independent of space. The physicists now understand that we live in space-time, four-dimensional space-time. And time goes slower the faster one moves with uh, regard to another body, relative to another body. So this is a very important New development in physics, actually not that new. Around 1907, uh, Einstein developed, first offered the special theory of relativity, and that's about all I know about it. Uh, But time is relative. There's no absolute time, even from the from the standpoint of the physicists. And we know psychologically also, time is relative. Sometimes time passes very slowly. Sometimes time passes very quickly. In the dentist's chair, ten minutes can seem like an eternity. And uh, whereas reading a thrilling novel, a few hours can pass like minutes. There's another story about Swamiji I'd like to put in here. It was difficult to pare them down. They're They're so wonderful. This was in uh, probably March 5th, 1900. And uh, Swamiji was going just before ascending the platform to give a lecture on India in San Francisco. Swamiji said to Mr. Allen, or Mr. Allen, who was then acting as the usher, when I get started on the subject of India, I never know when to stop. If I go on too long, attract my attention. He began promptly at 8 o'clock, Mr. Allen writes. And when it got to be 10 o'clock, we decided that I should attract his attention by swinging my watch from its chain. Standing at the back of the hall, I raised my hand and swung the watch. Swamiji quickly noticed. There they are, he said, swinging the watch for me to stop 
when I have hardly got started. <laughs> and then, as Mr. Allen often told the story in later years, he went right on with the lecture. <laughs> so this relative time for Swamiji also, when he would speak about India, time would stop. He could go on for hours. And he had the ability to enthrall his listeners and hold them for hours without feeling like time is passing. We mark the time by change, by events, by the passing of thoughts, by the passing of moments. Thousands of thoughts pass through our mind every day, every hour. Thousands of moments of awareness is one way to understand time, the passage of thoughts or moments of awareness. So here is one little clue to attaining timelessness, slowing down these thoughts, slowing down these moments. Between the thoughts, there's a little gap. If we can touch that gap and expand it, then we're having a little taste of what it means to go beyond time. There's another story of Swamiji. Uh, Before Swamiji went to San Francisco, he stayed in Los Angeles for a number of weeks, and he stayed first with one Mrs. Blodgett in Los Angeles. Mrs. Blodgett had seen Swamiji at the Parliament of Religions, and afterwards he came to stay with her. And uh, it seems, again, they were running late for a lecture. And Josephine McLeod was trying to rush Swamiji, get him to hurry up and get there on time. And Mrs. Blodgett wrote about this incident many years later to Miss McLeod. She wrote, Do you remember the time he was showing me how he wound his turban about his head? And you were begging him to hasten, as he was already due at a lecture. So Swamiji is showing Mrs. Blodgett how to tie the turban. And Joseph McLeod, We're late, we're late. I said, Swamiji, don't hurry. Like the man on his way to be hung, and the crowd jostling each other to reach the place of execution, who called out, Don't hurry. There will be nothing interesting till I get there. I assure you, Swami, there will be nothing interesting till you get there. This pleased him so much that often afterwards he would say, There will be nothing interesting till I get there, and laugh like a boy. So this image of uh, the image of a man on the way to his own execution, and he sees the crowd jostling, hurrying to get there because they want to see. And he says, hey, you don't have to hurry. I'm not there yet. It won't be, nothing interesting will happen until I get there. So Swamiji, uh, laughing, I think, he used to laugh so much, imagining his lecture as a, as a kind of execution or something. Uh, but Mrs. Blodgett apparently understood something of Swamiji's nature. She understood that, uh, his, uh, that hurry was anathema, to him, that he couldn't, he wasn't one for hurry, that he was beyond those kinds of things. In fact, this nature of, this this hurry of the American people very much struck Swamiji, and he commented on it. When uh, one night, uh, there was a Reverend B. Fay Mills was walking with him to the train that would take him to the Oakland Mole, And Mr. Mill said, Swami, we must hurry to catch the train. Swamiji made no change in his pace. Is there not another train? He asked. 
And there was an interview with a, a newspaper reporter uh, who closed, was closing the interview, and she said, I must go. I have to catch a train. That is like all Americans, smiled the Swami, she writes. And I had a glimpse of all eternity in his utter restfulness. Then he said, you must catch this car or that train always. Is there not another later? America really is the land of hurry. And it it is an American who came up with that amazing phrase, time is money. It was Benjamin Franklin. In 1748, he was 42, and he wrote uh, a letter called, Now, Advice to a Young Tradesman, written by an old one. And I'll just read it out. It's kind of funny old American English. Remember that time is money. He that can earn ten shillings a day by his labor and goes abroad and or sits idle one half of that day, though he spends but sixpence during his diversion or idleness, ought not to reckon that the only expense. He has really spent, or rather thrown away, five shillings besides. So he can earn ten shillings in a day, and he didn't work for half a day because he wanted to go relax. He just threw away five shillings in uh, Benjamin Franklin's analysis. This is a widely held view today in this country, widely held view, mm. that money not earned is actually money thrown away. Time is money. This, uh, there's no room for idleness in this conception, no room for taking off a day to meditate. Hurry and rush seem to be a feature of contemporary life. We can't seem to get away from it. Constantly feeling this pressure that, oh, I have to hurry, I have to rush, I have to get there in time, I have to uh, do more, I have to do more in less time. And even the rush seems to be speeding up. I think uh, it seems like computers are playing a big role in this speeding up of things because computers themselves are amazingly efficient, amazingly fast. They can do things instantly. So we start to feel like we also should be doing things instantly. And now if our email doesn't load for three seconds, we start getting impatient. We hit reload. What? Where is it? (laughs) Twenty years ago, we were ready to wait three or four days for a letter, and now we're not ready to wait three seconds for an email. Moreover, the computers especially uh, give rise to this strange phenomenon called multitasking. It's a strange term, and I think many of us do it. Some of the worst things, which are now illegal, but people still do it, texting and driving. It means writing something while trying to drive a car. Mm. Or maybe listening to a Vedanta lecture and checking your email at the same time. <laughs> You laugh, but I've been told that it happens. (laughs) So the problem is we can't do either of them well. We can't do either. If we're trying to do two things at once, we can't do either of them well. I remember once, this is the first time I encountered this, I was talking on the phone with a devotee in uh, Los Angeles, and I heard some typing in the background. And the conversation seemed a little funny, like there'd be funny little gaps... And then I said, what are you doing? Are you typing? 
And he, he admitted, well, no, he's having a conversation with someone else at the same time. <laughs> he's talking with me on the phone and also conversing with someone by typing on the, type, on the computer. So this is multitasking. So this, uh, this just makes the hurry more, as if uh, we think that'll make the hurry less, but it makes the hurry more. And we are bombarded constantly with propaganda that... Basically, you are the body. To get happiness, enjoy. Get more money. Own more things. Do more things. Hurry. You know, the advertisement, they often say, hurry, before, while supplies last. Hurry. Buy it now. Buy it now. Not, not tomorrow. Buy it now. <laughs> so this is leading to a lot of tension and worry and disjointed life. A life out of rhythm, out of balance. When Swami Vivekananda visited America and other Western countries, this habit of hurry was already well established. And he writes a little interesting passage in his Memoirs of European Travel, which, by the way, is a, a wonderful essay, hilariously funny, and also very insightful and analytical. So he writes, The Gita and the sacred waters of the Ganga constitute the Hinduism of the Hindus. Last time I went to the West, I also took a little of it with me, fearing it might be needed, and whenever opportunities occurred, I used to drink a few drops of it. And every time I drank, in the midst of the stream of humanity, amid that bustle of civilization, that hurry of frenzied footsteps of millions of men and women in the West, the mind at once became calm and still, as it were. That stream of men, that intense activity of the West, that clash and competition at every step, those seats of luxury and opulence, Paris, London, New York, Berlin, Rome, all would disappear. And I used to hear that wonderful sound of hara hara, to see that lonely forest on the side of the Himalayas, and feel the murmuring heavenly river coursing through the heart and brain and every artery of the body, and thundering forth, Hara, Hara, Hara. So that's how Swamiji uh, would deal with the hustle and bustle of the West. He would drink a few drops of Ganga water, Ganges water. And that reminds me that it's, it's uh, recorded that Swami Turiyananda, when he was in the West, he kept up a constant chanting of Hari Om. Swami Atulananda recorded that uh, when he was in the West, if he wasn't talking, walking in the street or wherever he was, Hari Om, Hari Om, Hari Om, Hari Om. Now, interesting, he didn't do this when he was in India. Atulanandaji was with him in India also, but when he was in the West, he also kept this up, which may be also his way of counteracting the incredible energy and rajas of the West, that hurry of frenzied footsteps of millions of men and women. Swamiji notes the danger in this kind of life, though he appreciated, of course, the energy of America, the energy to do things, whereas his own country was stuck in tamas. But America was ready to go beyond Rajas, beyond the hurry, and it hasn't done it yet. He writes, in this stress and hurry of our materialistic life, 
our nerves lose sensibility and become hardened. The older we grow, the longer we are knocked about in the world, the more callous we become, and we are apt to neglect things that even happen persistently and prominently around us. So Swamiji generally, uh, he would tell his disciples, don't hurry. Writing to his disciples in India, well, do not be anxious, do not be in a hurry. Slow, persistent, and silent work does everything. The Lord is great, we will succeed, my boy, we must. Blessed be his name. In May of 1898, Swamiji was in Almora with Sister Niverita and others. And Niverita recalls Swamiji's favorite story about Vidyasagar. They were talking about Pandit Ishwar Chandra Vidyasagar. And uh, the story goes like this, uh, that when Vidyasagar went home from the legislative council, pondering over the question of whether or not to adopt English dress on such occasions. He was a Hindu, and he, the Legislative Council obviously had Englishmen there. Suddenly, someone came up to a fat mogul who was proceeding homewards in a leisurely and pompous fashion in front of him, with the news, Sir, your house is on fire. The mogul went neither faster nor slower for this information. And presently, the messenger contrived to express a discreet astonishment, whereupon his master turned on him angrily. Wretch, he said, am I to abandon the gate of my ancestors because a few sticks happen to be burning? And Vidyasagar, walking behind, determined to stick to the chadar, dhoti, and sandals, not even adopting coat and slippers. Swamiji loved this story of uh, the fat mogul who was not going to rush because a few sticks are burning. His ancestors going back for so many centuries had been walking with their majestic gait and he wasn't going to hurry it up just because a few sticks are burning. And most of the time we're, we're running about just because a few sticks are burning. Even a, the, his house is burning, it's just a few sticks. <laughs> is it so important? There's a, another funny story about Swamiji, amazing story really, that uh, he, he and Mrs. Hansbro, Alice Hansbro, started from Alameda for Camp Taylor on April 24. They didn't make it till a week later. What happened is uh, for, to get to Camp Taylor, they had to take first a train and then a ferry and then another ferry and then another, another train. And to get reach all these things, they had to catch the first train in time. Well, they missed the first train. But there was another train, they came to know there's another train just nearby, uh, a narrow gauge train. If, you, if we hurry there, we can get it. So they went over there, and just as they're getting to that uh, train station, the train starts moving. So what happens? The, uh, Alice Hansborough writes, This train was just getting underway. I called to the conductor on the back platform, who called back, If you run... I'll wait for you. I looked at Swamiji. He simply said, I will not run. <laughs> Even though the train was there within a few yards of him, 
he would not run. <laughs> we will all run, I think. But Swamiji wouldn't run. He was ready to go back to Alameda, home of truth, where he was staying, and wait a whole, a whole other week before going to uh, um, Camp Taylor. At the same time, when needed, Swamiji could act with incredible speed and efficiency. Here's a reminiscence from Frank Rodhamel. This is in San Francisco. He writes, Swamiji's personal appearance on my first interview was a pleasurable shock from which I have never fully recovered. He had on a long gray dressing gown and was sitting cross-legged on a chair, smoking a pipe, his long hair falling in wild disarray over his features. This interview was continued 15 minutes beyond the time set for a class on Raja Yoga to be held in the front room of the house. We were interrupted by the lady in charge of affairs, must have been Mrs. Hansborough, rushing into the room and exclaiming, Why, Swami, you have forgotten all about the yoga class. It is 15 minutes past time now, and the room is full of people. The Swami arose hastily to his feet, exclaiming to me, Oh, excuse me, we will now go to the front room. I walked through the hall to the front room. He went through his bedroom, which was between the room we had been sitting in and the front room. Before I was seated, he emerged from his room with his hair neatly combed and attired in his sannyasin robe. Not more than one minute had elapsed from the time he started from his room with disheveled hair and in lounging attire, till he came leisurely out into the front room ready to lecture. Speed and precision of action were evidently at his command. So this was not hurry. This was, uh, as Mr. Rodhamel puts it, speed and precision of action. When he needed to act quickly, he certainly could act quickly. And here was a time when he felt it was appropriate to just, as if effortlessly, comb his hair, put on his robe, and come into the hall for the class. This is possible when we're not doing two things at once. He could put his whole mind on whatever he was doing. So he put his whole mind on just combing his hair, putting on his robe, coming out. Intensely concentrated, one-pointed mind. Swami Vivekananda was... At the same time, we find with Swamiji often the two sides to his personality, opposite sides, opposite things. And we find here also Swamiji was entirely unheard, and yet he also had this feeling of hurry. He wrote to Swami Brahmananda, I am in a tremendous hurry. I want to work at hurricane speed, and I want fearless hearts. To Mary Hale, he wrote, Sister, the way is long, the time is short, evening is approaching. I have to go home soon. I have no time to give my manners a finish. I cannot find time to deliver my message. So here we have the side of Swamiji that is identified with the prophet. He is a prophet, a messenger. He had received a mandate from his master to deliver a message. 
to transform the world. And he knew he didn't have much time to do it. And he was conscious of the Divine Mother constantly pushing him to do it. So in that sense, he also was in a hurry. He was in a hurry to deliver his message. So we find these two different aspects to his personality. On the one hand, this terrific pressure to complete his mission, spreading his message. And on the other, this utter rest, this utter rest beyond time. It's also interesting to note that Swami Vivekananda, though he seemed, he seemed so careless about time while in the United States, say coming to a lecture on time or those kind of things, for his brother monks and the um, disciple monks in his monastery at Belermut, he was extremely strict, extremely strict about sticking to the routine of doing things at the right time. He wrote to them, Whenever you promise to do any work, you must do it exactly at the appointed time, or people lose faith in you. And the monks were to attend regular study classes and meditation periods. And there was a bell was to be rung to call them to the shrine or call them to the class from their work or their puja or whatever they're doing. And those not attending were scolded. In fact, sometimes he would send them out to beg their food once he came to the shrine uh, and found that no one had come, almost no one had come for meditation, and he, he called everyone, scolded them, and said, no food for you today. You go beg your food. And don't go to your friends in Calcutta. You have to go find your food wherever you can. There's a, there's a funny story about uh, related by Swami Akandananda, he, he relates that one night at the time when the mutt was located at Nilambar Babu's garden at Belur, there were discussions on Vedanta which continued up to two o'clock in the morning. Towards the end, the matter for debate centered around the question whether the soul is reborn after death and later whether man is reborn as lower animals or not. Swamiji had started the debate and the brothers had taken whichever side they pleased. Swamiji remained neutral and generally silent, but at times he supplied arguments to the losing side. At last he stopped it at two o'clock. Everybody went to sleep. But just at 4 a.m., Swamiji asked me, the Swami Akandananda, to ring the rising bell. He was by then walking up and down, singing to himself after his morning ablutions. Seeing me hesitating, he said to me, Ring the bell. Let them all wake up. I cannot see them sleeping anymore. I replied, They all went to sleep only two hours ago. Let them sleep a little more. But in a firm voice, Swamiji said, They went to sleep at two, so they will get up at six. Is that your plea? All right, give me the bell. I will ring it. Are we starting this mutt for sleeping? Then I rang the bell quite vigorously. And everybody got up, shouting, Who is that? Who are you? If I were alone, perhaps they would have finished me. But when they saw Swamiji smiling behind me, they one by one went to the adjoining rooms on the other side, yawning and rubbing their eyes. <laughs> so Swamiji uh, insisted on this 
time. How do we reconcile these two positions? Swamiji himself often used to say, the extremes look alike. The extremes look alike. Swamiji being late for a lecture, from our standpoint, was because he had gone beyond time. He was immersed in that which is beyond time. If we come late to the lecture, it's because we're lazy or we're inefficient or we're inconsiderate. They look very much the same, two people coming late for a lecture. But the reason is very different. It's a difference between sattva and tamas. This explains why, for his monks, he insisted, because monks are kind of lazy fellows, so they are, he insisted that we should get up early in the morning, according to the bell, and, uh, but he himself had gone beyond it. One thing about time, as long as we are in it, it is relentless, it never stops. We can reflect, reflecting on this fact can actually be a help to us in our spiritual life. It can goad us to living a more intense spiritual life. There's a beautiful verse uh, written by Shankaracharya in one of his hymns to Shiva. Ayur nashyati pashyatam pratirinanyati kshayam yauvalam pratyayanti gataf punar kalo jagat bhakshakaha lakshmi stoyataranga bhanga chapala vidyut chalam jivitam tasman nam sharanagatam sharanada Day by day does man come nearer to death. His youth wears away. The day that is gone never returns. Almighty time devours everything. Fortune is unsteady as the lapping of waves on water. A lifetime passes by like a flash of lightning. O Shiva, O giver of shelter to those that come to you for refuge, protect me who have taken refuge at your feet. Beautiful verse, very insightful. That We know it, but we forget it. The day that is gone never returns. Every day brings us one day closer to death. That's why Swami Brahmananda would say this kind of thing. He would say, life is fast flowing like a river. The day that is gone can never come back. So make the best use of your time. Crying out, alas, alas, at the last moment will be of no avail. So take to spiritual practices in all earnestness. Make up your mind to realize your goal or die in the attempt. Death is certain. It may come today or tomorrow, even if you lose your life in trying to attain God. It is not loss, but but a positive gain. Swamiji writes of this nature of time as the destroyer. Time, the avenger of everything, comes and nothing is left. He swallows up the saint and the sinner, 
the king and the peasant, the beautiful and the ugly. He leaves nothing. Everything is rushing towards that one goal, destruction. Our knowledge, our arts, our sciences, everything is rushing towards it. None can stem the tide, none can hold it back for a minute. We may try to forget it in the same way that persons in a plague-stricken city try to create oblivion by drinking, dancing, and other vain attempts, and so becoming paralyzed. So we are trying to forget, trying to create oblivion by all sorts of sense pleasures. And this is Maya. In the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna has a terrifying vision of the Lord. He begs Sri Krishna, show me your universal form. I wish to see it. And Krishna says, all right, I'll show you since you are very dear to me. I give you divine sight. Behold my divine yoga. And Arjuna is utterly stunned and terrified because he sees that everything is heading towards destruction and he sees these huge flaming mouths of the divine and all the worlds are entering within and all the warriors on the field of Kurukshetra are getting crushed to powder, their heads getting crushed to powder between the teeth or getting stuck between the interstices between the teeth. It's a terrifying vision and he he cries out in terror, tell me who are you? Fierce in form, salutation to you, O Deva Supreme, have mercy. I desire to know you, O primeval one. I know not indeed thy purpose. And Sri Krishna answers, Kalos mi lokakshaya krit pravridho, lokan samahar tomiha pravrittaha. I am the mighty world-destroying time, here made manifest for the purpose of enfolding the world. So time is, the Lord himself is time. Swami Vivekananda calls the Mother Kali, time the all-destroyer. So the only remedy is to go beyond time. And that is done by our spiritual practice, by our realizing that we are not in time. Only our bodies are in time and our minds are in time. I been uh, was going over a wonderful little book uh, by Eknath Ishwaran called Take Your Time. In this book, he discusses this problem of hurry and not having enough time. And his, his answer is, how can we get more time? There's, there are several ways we can get more time. One, how can we slow time down? One way is we can go very fast. We can travel at the speed of light and time will slow down on the earth. <laughs> but that's obviously not possible for us. So, the uh, solution is a kind of paradox. We get more time by slowing down. We get more time by slowing down, by doing one thing at a time. The mind is such that it can't do two things at once. The mind can only give its attention 
to one thing at a time. That's the nature of the mind. It takes up one thing at a time. If we try to do three things at once, actually the mind has to move very quickly between three things, back and forth, back and forth. Very tiring and not efficient. It's much more efficient to let the mind, give the mind fully to one thing at a time. And he gives some other hints, like uh, just get up half an hour earlier in the morning. He has some nice hints. Don't do too many things. Choose wisely. We have to choose wisely what's important, what's really important for us. How important is it to us to, to uh, say, watch the evening news or um, read the gossip column in the newspaper? How important is it? So he, he, he found that he made a list of all the things he does in the day. He could cross about a third of them off as not really being important. And he got a lot more time that way. Perhaps you rem- you've heard of the book Be Here Now. It's a famous book for Americans at least, uh, one of the big hippie books by one Ram Das. But it's a very wonderful topic, a very wonderful title, Be Here Now. I think this ultimately is, is a, a very important clue to going beyond time. Most of the time, we're, if we are hurrying, We're not only hurrying, but we're also worrying. Hurrying and worrying. They go together. Hurry and worry, and worry and hurry. We're hurrying because we don't want to be late, and we're worrying that we're going to be late. And we start worrying about the future, and then we start thinking about the past. And although we're right now in the present, but we're mostly thinking about the future, worrying about the future, and hurrying to get there, and... Uh, trying to forget the past or trying not to forget the past and running around thinking about all those things that we did or wish we did or wish we didn't do. And mm, the funny thing is that all that thinking and worrying is happening right now. We can only do it right now. Actually, the present moment is the only moment there is. As long as we are in time, we're conscious of this present moment. If we're thinking about the future, we're thinking about it now. If we're thinking about the past, we're thinking about it now. So rather, why not just do what we're doing with one-pointed attention and cultivate mindfulness, as Buddha would call it, or practice the presence of God, as Brother Lawrence would call it. And thus, in this present moment, we can go beyond time. We can escape the hurry and worry habit and go beyond time. I'd like to close with uh, part of the poem Swamiji wrote, Song of the Free. And here he talks about this going beyond time, being beyond time and space and causation. Nor angel I nor man, nor brute, nor body, mind, nor he, nor she. The books do stop in wonder mute to tell my nature. I am he. Before the sun, the moon, the earth, before the stars or comets free, before in time has had its birth, I was, I am, and I will be.
the beauteous earth, the glorious sun, the calm sweet moon, the spangled sky, causation's laws do make them run. They live in bonds, in bonds they die. And mind its mantle, dreamy net casts o'er them all and holds them fast. In warp and woof of thought are set earth, hells, and heavens, or worst, or best. No, these are but the outer crust. All space and time, all effect, cause. I am beyond all sense, all thoughts, the witness of the universe. Not two, nor many, tis but one. And thus in me all me's I have. I cannot hate, I cannot shun myself from me, I can but love. From dreams awake, from bonds be free, be not afraid. This mystery, my shadow, cannot frighten me. Know once for all that I am he. Sarvastaratu Durgani Sarvo Bhadrani Pashyatu Sarvasad Buddhimapnotu Sarvas Sarvatranandatu Durjana Sajjano Bhuyat Sajjana Shanti Mapnuyat Shanto Mucheta Bandhe Bhu Muktashanyan Vimochayet Swasti Prajabhyaf Paripalayantam Nyayena Margena Mahi Mahi Shah Go Brahmanebhya Shubhamastunityam Loka Samasta Sukhino Bhavantu Loka Samasta Sukhino Bhavantu Om Shantishantishantihi May all be freed from dangers. May all realize what is good. May all be actuated by noble thoughts. May all rejoice everywhere. May the wicked become virtuous. May the virtuous attain tranquility. May the tranquil be free from bonds. May the freed make others free. May good betide all people. May the sovereign rule the earth following the righteous path. May all beings ever attain what is good. May the worlds be prosperous and happy. Om, peace, peace, peace. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to share my thoughts and to think about this naughty problem of time. Several people had mentioned to me that they were feeling very upset about the uh, terrible shooting that happened in Connecticut. So I would like to just say one or two words, which is that, um, first of all, we, as the students of Vedanta, we have the firm conviction that there is no death for the soul, no death for anyone. So some children have been cru cruelly murdered, but they are not dead. Hmm? They are met on the other side and are brought to generally to regions of light and peace. And uh, so the difficult part is the grief of the parents who are missing their children, that's no doubt. And 
we feel for them and we pray for them. And we also, though, can remember that their grief is not any less keen than the grief of thousands and thousands of parents of children in Iraq and Afghanistan who have also been killed in the wars there. Mm -hmm. This world is a mixture of good and bad, and our task is to grab hold of the good and gradually go beyond both. Uh, so just offering a few Vedantic words uh, relating to these incidents. And hold on to the conviction that the very basis of our being is bliss, satchit ananda. Existence, consciousness, bliss, absolute, is the very basis of our being. Mm. That is who we are, and that is, we. if we don't know it now, we will come to know it definitely without a doubt. 